Our text today is comparatively short, verses 8 through 16. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary so that they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under the heaven, from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for worship. We give you thanks that it's even possible for created things to worship the Creator. We give you thanks for the work that you accomplished in Christ to rescue us from our worship of other things. I pray today that our worship would be strengthened, that our faith would be deepened as we look into this text and even see it in the larger picture of the story. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a short but very significant episode in the larger story of Israel's exodus from Egypt and her inheritance in the land of Canaan. It's also a short but significant episode in the even larger story of Jesus' exodus from the grave and his inheritance of the world. So we absolutely need to talk about the specifics of the episode so that we understand their immediate, their temporal significance in that moment of history because there's lessons to be learned there. But we need to talk also about their significance in light of the larger, longer gospel story because there's the faith and a hope to be strengthened and to be maintained there. So we need the lessons from the episode because there's a fight to be fought in the here and now. But we need the longer, larger view as well because they remind us where the here and now is headed and who this story is ultimately about, both the here and the now and the grand story. And on what basis and in whose strength and for whose glory we now fight and believe and hope. Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16, like every episode before it and each one that will come after, is part of a larger, longer story that goes something like this. The one true, only, self-existing, everlasting, triune God created the world and all things in it for the immediate purpose of revealing himself to it, so that all the created world would see him and know him and love him and worship him and enjoy him forever. 
And in order to accomplish this, God created mankind in his likeness, after his image, and placed him in a garden on the east of a place called Eden. There God would reveal himself to mankind, commune with him, and commission him in accordance with his purpose. And this he did. On the sixth day, God created man in his image, after his likeness. He named him Adam. He communed with him daily. And he commissioned him to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory and rule the earth in his stead. And those two commissions are not two unrelated things. Be fruitful and multiply until the earth is filled with God's image bearers who do see and who do know and who do commune and who do love and who do worship God in the fullness of his glory. And because they do, they rule the earth in his stead in such a way that all of creation sees and knows and loves and bows down in joyful worship to this very same God. So that the knowledge of the goodness and the power and the glory of God fills the world and the God whose glory and power and goodness is reflected by his image bearers is also known and joyfully worshipped by all of his creation. But to test you, to test you, so that you might always remember your purpose here is not your own but mine. So to remind you that your purpose here is to see and to know and to love and to worship and to reflect and to spread the knowledge of my glory, I place a tree in the middle of the garden that represents the alternative to my good gifts of life and sight and worship and joy. And this tree and its fruit represents every alternative to seeing and knowing and loving and joyfully worshiping and passionately spreading the knowledge of my glory until the earth is a temple where I'll meet with you and you worship me and I'm glorified eternally and you're full of joy eternally. So if you rebel against my purpose and eat from this tree, you will come to know the opposite, death, curse, sorrow, Pain, evil, you will surely die. Meaning your ability to see the glory of God. And your capacity to know the glory of God. And your desire to love the glory of God. And your joy to worship the God of glory. And your will to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and rule it in my stead. So that all of creation sees and knows and loves and bows down in joyful worship and joyful submission will die as well. And when you return to the dust from which you were made, all of it is going to die with your children as well until they return turn to the dust from which they were made and so on and so on with every generation until either the self-destruction of the world or its rescue, redemption and restoration. So when Adam and Eve fall 
and eat and begin to experience the death and the curse that was forewarned. It was almost immediate that we also hear God's promise not to do what we would have done and abandon the project altogether and justly let the rebels kill themselves off. Instead, we hear God's covenant promise. His promise to enter the world that he created himself. Though the world was fallen, though the world was now under the curse, though the world was destined for death, we hear his promise to enter the world himself, not in the fullness of his eternal glory, as the sovereign one to simply speak all things right again, but as an offspring of the woman. Eternal, sovereign God, becoming incarnate in human flesh so that he might rescue, redeem, and restore all things. And if revealing the knowledge of his glory through his image bearers so that all of creation might see and know and love and joyfully worship him was the immediate purpose of creating the world the particular way that he created it, revealing the knowledge of his glory by the exact imprint, not the image bearer, but the exact imprint of his nature and the full radiance of his glory becoming incarnate to rescue, redeem, and restore all things. That was the ultimate purpose of creation. Not a second take at it. Not a desperate effort to compensate for man's unforeseen rebellion, but immediate and ultimate, immediate leading to the rebellion Ultimate leading to the rescue. Immediate leading to the fall. Ultimate leading to redemption. I will put enmity between you and the woman. God says. He's speaking to the serpent there. He's speaking in the garden there, in the wake of the fall there. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. But until the culmination of that day, death and curse and pain and sorrow remain. Faith and joy and reflection of the glory of God to our neighbors and to the next generation remains a struggle with an oppressive amount of resistance, both from within our fallen hearts and from without in our fallen world. And yet, and yet, a remnant ever since the promise was made, a remnant holds fast by grace to the promise. God himself will rescue. God himself will save. God himself will redeem. God himself will lift this curse and reverse its effects. God himself will restore all things and not just restore them, but make them new. And he'll do it by incarnation and death and resurrection from the dead, all the while promising those who believe, I will not ever abandon you. 
I will sustain you by my grace, and I give you my word, and I give you my spirit, who will apply the accomplishments of my finished work all the way from regeneration when it begins to glorification when it ends. And in between, he will sustain your confidence in each and every one of the promises of my word. So beginning with Adam and Eve, even though they fell, and even though they plunged humanity into sin and mortality and death and curse, and were born sinners under them, and we bring sinners into the world by our biological union with them, even though in them we die, here we read the promise that in their seed we will live again and will live forever. And the first 11 chapters of Genesis carry that promise from the original recipients in Genesis 3 to the man Abraham in Genesis 12. And then from the man Abraham in Genesis 12 to his son Isaac in Genesis 26. And then from Isaac to his son Jacob in Genesis 28. And then from Jacob to his son Judah specifically in Genesis 49, that the serpent-crushing, curse-bearing seed of Eve, son of Abraham, king of Israel, redeemer of the world, would be born of his tribe. So to Judah specifically, but to Jacob's 12 sons as a collective people over and over and over again all over the Old Testament in acts of redemption that are 100% for Israel's temporary, momentary deliverance from whatever kind of bondage they were in at the time and at the same time 100% as precursors or types or shadows of the greater, the unending, the eternal, the promised redemption that was yet to come. And each of these acts of redemption are accomplished so that God's people might genuinely, wholeheartedly rejoice in them and be thankful for them and offer up their worship, worship to him in that moment, but maintain and strengthen their hope in and their anticipation of the far greater, the much more climactic, the much longer lasting the eternal, the promise fulfilling, the never to return to the types and shadows, redemption of the seed of the woman, crushing the head of the serpent as well. It's near far. It's immediate, it's ultimate, it's type, it's anti-type, it's shadow, it's substance, it's already, it's not yet. And the one event in the Old Testament that the rest of the Bible refers back to that prefigures Jesus' redemption like no other event is not only the act after which the book we're in was named, but chronologically in the book, it's where we were just a few short weeks ago. Chapter 14, Israel's exodus from Egypt. That the exodus was meant to be understood this way, with this weight, with this significance, cannot be more clear in Scripture. How many times does God say to his people after the exodus, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. How much clearer can Asaph B, with his inspired comments in Psalm 77, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. 
Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made your way You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Consider even more explicitly God speaking in Hosea 11.1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Those words look back on the Exodus in Exodus 14. But don't forget the words that follow in Hosea 11 verse 2. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away. Is that not where we've been now ever since chapter 14? All Israel has done is complain and grumble and murmur and mumble against God and his people. What are we supposed to drink, Moses? Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And then most recently in chapter 17, give us water to drink. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? As I take a drink. All they've done since the exodus is complain and grumble and murmur. And even though God has mercifully responded to their grumblings with further acts of redemption, I call them aftershocks of the exodus. Or tremors meant to remind his people of the big one yet to come. Their grumblings and their murmurings not only continue, but they degenerate even further into idolatry. Hosea 11.2 continues this way. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. So it covers where we've been. And it covers where we're going because it's not long from now that the people think that Moses has been on the mountaintop too long. And they demand of Aaron that he help them violate the first two of the Ten Commandments that God had given his people. The commandments prefaced by this refrain. 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. And when Aaron takes their rings of gold and fashions a golden calf and holds it up before the representatives of Israel who made the demand and they take the golden calf and they hold it up to the people, they blasphemously announce, these are your gods, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And God says to Moses, let me alone. So that my wrath may burn hot against this stiff-necked people in order that I may make a great nation of you. And it's Moses who intercedes once again for his people. And his intercession is based on God's covenant promises to Abraham and his seed and the redemptive significance of the exodus on the way to God fulfilling his promises to his people of both offspring and inheritance. Not only Israel and Canaan, but Jesus and the world. And Exodus 32, 14 says, The Lord relented of the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. And God would relent again and again and again until he would no longer relent. And he sent the Assyrians to carry away the northern kingdom. And he sent the Babylonians to carry away the southern kingdom. And then he goes silent for 400 years. And when he speaks again, he speaks over and over in language of fulfillment because the time had come. The shadows would turn to substance. The types would yield to the anti-type. The promises would be fulfilled. Consider a few. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And when Herod the king hears the wise men from the east, he was troubled in all of Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And when the angel warns Joseph in a dream that Herod is about to search for the young child, to destroy him and instructs him to rise and flee to Egypt until the death of Herod. The Holy Spirit says through Matthew in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 15, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet out of Egypt have I called my son. Hosea 11, 1. He's telling us that the stories we're reading in Exodus not only maintain their momentary meaning and significance, but they stand as precursors. They stand as types, as shadows, as rumblings of another Adam in whom all believe do not die but live. A greater son and seed of both Eve and Abraham than Cain or Abel or Seth or Isaac or Jacob. The true son, the true heir of all of God's promises and all who are united to him by faith as joint heirs with him. And a greater son whom he called out of 
Egypt by an even greater exodus than Israel's of old in his resurrection from the dead. It's greater because neither he nor any united to him by faith in the exile of his death or the exodus of his resurrection will ever return to bondage or be sent away for all of eternity into exile. It is a redemption accomplished that is like no other before it and will have no one like it after it. And brothers and sisters, I have only begun to scratch the surface. So as Israel continues her journey from redemption from Egypt to the inheritance of Canaan by way of Mount Sinai and 40 years of wilderness wanderings, she's been confronted now three times with opposition from within, meaning her own sinfulness, her own grumblings and complainings, her own unbelief, her own eagerness to violate the covenant and forfeit everything promised. And each time God has mercifully met her grumblings with salvation from thirst twice, from hunger once. Make no mistake, brothers and sisters, and just translate this sentence to the present. Israel is redeemed, but she has much to learn on her way to her promised rest. And trial and testing seems to be her classroom again and again and again. Does that not explain life? And while our text contains its own opposition and resistance to overcome on the way to inheriting the promised rest, this time it's not from within but from without as Israel is confronted by her first of many enemies along the way. And in this text, it's the Amalekites. If you're tempted to think this short episode, and these Amalekites are just insignificant in the big scheme or just filler space in the narrative, let me challenge you. When God is giving his final instructions to Moses to give to the people before he dies and before Joshua takes his place to lead Israel across the Jordan into the land of Canaan, he brings our text up in Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 17 when he says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, and he cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies all around you, in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And the last thing he says is, you shall not forget, which is exactly what King Saul does. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, he forgets. He forgets despite the reminder from Samuel directly from Deuteronomy 25. Before he leads the army out to engage the Amalekites. While Samuel reminded Saul of God's instructions to blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven because of what they did to Israel in our text this morning, Saul summons the army and defeats the Amalekites, but he spares the king, Agag. And he takes the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs. And the Lord says to Samuel, I regret that I've made him king. 
And Samuel says to Saul, because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he's also rejected you from being king. And God sends Samuel to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, to anoint David with the promise of an even greater king from his lineage who would not only inherit a kingdom and a throne that would have no end, but who would himself finish the job, finish the job against all of his enemies, making each and every one a footstool for his feet for all of eternity. A true seed of Eve, a true son of Abraham, A true king from Judah and Jesse and David. A greater king than even David who would spare no enemy but triumph over them all by the exile of his death and the exodus of his resurrection from the dead. Amalek's unprovoked attack of Israel in Exodus 17 plays a crucial role in the unfolding of events that would not only dethrone Saul and enthrone David, but even define some of the promises that are made to David and to Israel in this greater king. God says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly and I will give you rest from all your enemies. In other words, David's true son will finish the job unlike Saul, even unlike David, even unlike Solomon, even unlike any of the kings that followed him. They all failed in various ways and they all died. But the one who is to come, God says, I will establish the throne Of his kingdom forever. Forever. And Christ reigns. Because he's risen from the dead. And we await the culmination of his kingdom when he returns. But the question remains. How do we live until that day? How do we live while we pray your kingdom come until his kingdom comes? In other words, how do we live between exodus and inheritance? Or how do we live between redemption and our rest? Brothers and sisters, this is the near. This is the immediate, the momentary purpose of these stories. We see Jesus clear and mighty on these pages in these acts Casting these beautiful shadows and our confidence in him is strengthened, no doubt. Our hope in him is maintained, confirmed, no doubt. He accomplished the greater exodus and triumphed over his foes and crushed the head of the serpent, even as he himself was exiled to death as the serpent bruised his heel. There's no doubt that these stories are given to strengthen and to maintain our hope in the greater redemptive realities that they represent. But brothers and sisters, like Israel of old, there is a long time, there's a lifetime between redemption and rest. So how do we live? We know where to hope. We know what to believe, but how do we live? Might I suggest to us this morning that our text, Exodus 17, verses 8 through 16, teaches us four things that I'm simply going to list to you this morning. Number one, our text teaches us that we fight with the desperation that our survival is at stake because it is. Verses 8 and 9. 
Then Amalek came to fight with Israel at Rephidim. Moses says to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Number two, that we hold up our hands in the prayerful confidence that the battle is the Lord's because it is. It's verses 9 and 10. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up on the top of the hill. Number three, that we fight this way and that we pray this way together, knowing that we will not make it on our own because we won't. This is verses 11 through 13. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, and they put a stone. They took a stone and they put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, so that his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And number four, that we rest assured that we will, in fact, make it together to the end as one body. It's verse 13. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. We will, in fact, make it together as one body because the head of the body, who is a greater warrior than Joshua, has come to defeat the enemy and lead us to the promised rest. And a greater mediator than Moses intercedes for us all the way to the end. And brothers and sisters, his arms do not grow heavy, but they remain strong and they remain outstretched to save and to keep because he always lives to make intercession for us. He will not fail. And when the battle was won in the text, the Lord instructs Moses to write it down and build an altar as a memorial of what happened and a promise of what was to come. God here defeated the Amalekites and he would defeat them again, if not in Saul, in Christ. And in Christ we have no more need of altars that memorialize the temporal or the type or the shadow because we have the empty tomb. The eternal, the antitype, the substance, the Christ. And in his death and resurrection, we have the victory. So, brothers and sisters, we fight and we pray. And we pray and we fight together because the tomb is empty. And we fight and we pray and we pray and we fight together by faith that Jesus, our greater warrior than Joshua, our greater prophet and mediator than Moses, our greater king than Saul or David has already won. He's already risen from the dead. He already rules the world from the throne of his inheritance and he ever lives to intercede for us on our journey from redemption to rest. So let us fight, brothers and sisters. Let us hold up our arms and pray, brothers and sisters, and let us fight and pray together, brothers and sisters, but let us fight and pray together by faith under the banner of the empty tomb. He is not here. He's risen from the dead. And let us fight and pray this way together under that banner until there's no more need for memorials or reminders or faith or banners when Jesus comes again and leads us on one final aftershock of his exodus from the grave to our eternal rest. Let's pray to that end.
Father in heaven. What a climactic text. What a climactic text because of all that it represents. Not merely a momentary battle won, but an eternal battle won. The greatest exile leading to the greatest exodus. And we are united. We're part of the victory. By faith in those accomplishments. God, strengthen our faith. Strengthen our resolve to fight because the tomb is empty. Because our king reigns. Give us grace to fight together. May this body collectively, individually, make it to the end because you are faithful. You're faithful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.